Would you take your Bibles and turn to the seventh chapter of 1 Corinthians? And I want to read a text that will probably startle some of you. You may wonder when we've read through the text uh, why this particular matter is taken up in Scripture. Some of you may be utterly surprised that God is concerned about uh, these uh, issues. I want to assure you that he is, and that's why the subject of love, sex, and marriage is uh, well covered uh, in the Scriptures. Let's uh, begin reading with verse 1 of chapter 7, 1 Corinthians 7. Now, for the matters you wrote about, it is good for a man not to marry. But since there's so much immorality, each man should have his own wife, and each woman her own husband. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife, and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife's body does not belong to her alone, but also to her husband In the same way, the husband's body does not belong to him alone, but also to his wife. Do not deprive each other except by mutual consent and for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I say this as a concession, not as a command. I wish that all men were as I am, but each man has his own gift from God One has this gift, another has that. Uh, Paul uh, uh, did a better job of uh, returning his correspondence than uh, than I do. Uh, As I have mentioned before, 1 Corinthians is uh, essentially a reply to a letter that had been sent to him from individuals in the church uh, in Corinth. There was also a report from the house of Chloe, and as far as Paul was concerned, these were the matters that were of more importance, so he addresses them first. But then he begins to take up a series of questions that were raised uh, in this letter that was uh, that came to him through the uh, deputation of uh, uh, Fortunatus and Stephanus and Achaicus and these three men that uh, had, uh, had had come to him with the letter in hand. There's an introductory formula that keeps occurring throughout uh, the book from this point on. Uh, it's uh, now concerning. You see it in uh, chapter 7, verse 1, now concerning the things of which you wrote. turns up again a bit later in chapter 7, now concerning virgins. In chapter 8, uh, he, when he refers to food offered to idols, that introductory formula is found there. shows up again in chapter 12, now concerning spiritual gifts. And then finally in chapter 16, where he turns to the issue of an offering for the churches. So that in each case, he seems to be referring to some issue, some very important issue that the Corinthians had raised in this letter. And uh, he he, uh, he begins to reply uh, in the first verse of chapter chapter 7. Now the NIV translates the phrase, it is good for a man not to marry. That apparently was a uh, was actually a quotation from their letter. Paul was fond of picking up some phrase or axiom or saying in Corinth and building upon uh, uh, upon uh, that uh, one of these aphorisms. I referred uh, to his doing that in chapter six on two different occasions. He picks up a phrase that they were using, and he while he agrees with the phrase, he elaborates uh, upon it. And I think this this statement 
it is good for a man not to marry, was actually found in their text and uh, in their letter, and he, he, he's going to pick up on this, uh, on this idea. Actually, the, the way the NIV translates uh, the text is not completely accurate. They over-translate it. They give their interpretation. The phrase actually reads, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. That was a, a, a euphemism for sexual union, touching a woman, that was used throughout the ancient uh, Greek world. You find that phrase in, in uh, a lot of classical Greek literature, in the writings of Plato and Aristotle and, and Marcus Aurelius, for example. And uh, even the, uh, the Jewish uh, historian Josephus uses the idiom that way. And when the New Testament was translated into Greek on three different occasions in, in the Old Testament text, whenever sexual unions are referred to, that's the, uh, that's the idiom that's used to touch a woman. So for myself, I don't think that the Corinthians were primarily speaking about marriage. They were concerned about celibacy. And the question they're raising is this, is sex okay? Paul, what do you have to say about sexual relationships between uh, husband, husband and wife? Uh, this was an issue that was terribly confusing to them, as it was to many people. Uh, in, in the ancient world, they, uh, the people of that time greatly admired certain ascetic practices, particularly celibacy. Uh, there were men and women that devoted themselves to the gods of that time, which meant that they devoted themselves to a life of virginity. There were the uh, so-called Vestal Virgins, which you're probably uh, familiar with, at least you're familiar with the term, they were women that devoted themselves to 30 years of virginity in order to keep the flame of Vesta, who was a goddess uh, that was worshipped, uh, keep, uh, keep that flame burning. And um, the, the, this pagan idea had crept over into the church that, that there was something essentially defiling about, about sex. Perhaps they picked it up from, from other uh, of the Greek philosophers who thought of the body as as simply a container for the soul, that what really matters is the mind and the soul and the spirit, and uh, the body is contaminated, and it's, uh, it's not good for anything. And uh, somehow this idea had, had moved uh, over uh, into the church, and they were thinking that there's something inherently wrong with sexual activities of all kinds. And it's this issue that Paul is going to address uh, in this chapter. This, this has been a, a problem, I think, that has plagued us as Christians for centuries from the very, very beginning. How do we put sex to its intended purpose? Here is this powerful uh, 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 urge that we have that we, we just don't know how to contain it and how to handle it and how to explain it. There's a great deal of, of mystery in our sexuality. And uh, uh, I think right across the board, we struggle with it, how to put sex to its intended purpose. During the medieval period, as you know, the decision was made by some to separate from the opposite sex. And uh, men and women moved into monasteries. They didn't see one another. They lived isolated, asexual lives. They shaved their heads. They wore what we would call today unisex, actually asexual clothing, in order to hide their bodies and uh, to retreat from, from the world because there was this idea that if you did that, you were a bit holier than others. You were, 
more consecrated. There was more devotion to Christ. There was a, a, a poor fellow by the name of Simon Stylites who shinnied up a, a 30-foot pole with a perch on the top, and he spent most of his adult years living up on top of this pole in order to get away from uh, sexual temptation. Uh, it didn't work for him. He finally admitted when he slid back down the pole that he'd been tortured at night by visions of dancing girls. But uh, uh, that at least was his effort to try to, to try to get away from it, from it all. It was during this period that the notion of the immaculate conception of Mary was, was put into, uh, uh, began to be put into some kind of doctrinal form. It actually began with Augustine in the fourth century. And uh, uh, people were thinking of Mary as undefiled in the sense that uh, she didn't come into the world as a result of any, any sexual union because there was this notion that there's something radically wrong with sex. Now, it might surprise you to know that it was the Puritans that corrected this view in the church. This idea carried on through the medieval period, down through the Middle Ages, and on to the time of, of the Puritans. And uh, they were the ones that, that took the Bible seriously. And when they read what the Bible had to say about our sexuality, they realized that it was, it was part of the created order that God said was, was very good. William Tyndale, whose name you'll recognize, was the, uh, the first man to translate the Bible into English, into the English language. And uh, he was engaged throughout his lifetime with a, with a running feud with Sir Thomas More, who was another English reformer. Uh, More insisted that the, uh, on, the clergy, on the celibacy of the clergy. And uh, Tyndall argued with him that God intended ministers to marry and to enjoy the gift of, gift of sex. He was a Puritan, if there ever was one. But he, took, uh, he knew how to, how to read the Bible and how to understand it. And uh, probably the greatest of all Puritans, John Milton, wrote his celebrated poem, Paradise Lost, about uh, Adam and Eve's, most of it, as you know, you've, many of you have read it, is about Adam and Eve's uh, lovemaking in the garden. That was an idea that was very radical in his time. Uh, during that period, uh, people did not think that Adam and Eve made love in the garden. That was taboo. And uh, his poem makes it very clear that that's exactly what, uh, what they did, and that was the gift that God gave to them as, as uh, husband and, and wife. But unfortunately, in the Victorian period that, that followed, the best minds of the Puritan era were, were suppressed, and the church and official Christendom again began to suppress the biblical teaching on, on, uh, on sex. Now, as I said uh, three or four weeks ago when we were in 1 Corinthians 6, we need to understand that the Bible literally abounds with reference to our sexuality. The authors of Scripture are neither nervous nor are they timid about, uh, about sex. They, uh, they tell us that it's, it's God's gift to us, his wonderful gift. And uh, it's not something to be despised, but it's something to be accepted with, with thanksgiving. Uh, some of you may know that, that there is one whole book in the Bible that's devoted to lovemaking between uh, a husband and wife. It's wedded uh, a sexual union that's described uh, there. It's uh, the book that you may know is the Song of Solomon. Actually, the title of the book is the Song of Songs. Uh, that uh, uh, 
that uh, idiom, Song of Songs, is the Hebrew way of describing the incomparable song. This is the greatest love song that's ever been written. And uh, it's about love, the love between a man and, and his wife and their, and their love making. And it's a, it's a wonderful, wonderful poem. You should just sit down and read it for, for what it is. It's, uh, it's also been used as an allegory of the relationship between Christ and his church, rightly so, I believe, because it does, as we'll see in a moment, uh, sexual union does have its ultimate fulfillment in, in worship. And uh, the Song of Solomon legitimately can be used that way. But at its fundamental level, it has to do with, with, uh, with, with, with human love and with physical love and with love making. And it stares this wonderful course between, uh, between uh, marriage manuals that are too crass or too clinical. It describes the, the sexuality of, of the man and his wife by indirection. They're just wonderful, wonderful pictures of their relationship with one another and the love that they have for one another. One of my favorite is uh, when the the, uh, the the groom speaks to his bride and he says, "He says you're like a you're like a mare among the chariots of Pharaoh." And we say, "Now what what in the world is this?" You know, it's kind of a bizarre uh, compliment. You know, you have a face like a horse. I mean, what what what, <laughs> what is it that you're saying here? Uh, well, I want, I want to I want to only explain what, what what's going on. This is the Oriental way of of referring to something very very significant in their relationship. It goes back to an actual historic event back in the 13th century, 1289. There was a, a famous battle uh, near the near the town of Carchemish. So when the Hittites finally broke the back of of the Egyptians, the Egyptians were the dominant power in, in, in the Middle East during that time. And the reason they, they had basically conquered the civilized world is because they had perfected chariot warfare. They had these huge iron uh, chariots with, with scythes on the wheels, swords uh, welded onto the uh, outer rims of the wheels, and uh, they were drawn by stallions, usually two, uh, two stallions yoked together. And they, they were uh, shock troops. Uh, they were driven into the infantry to scatter the foot soldiers. And uh, that's the way the Egyptians had conquered the world. Well, the Hittites figured out a way to, to defeat them. What they did, and I mean, this, is, this is a known fact. It is actually written on the wall uh, in Egyptian pictographs in uh, the city of Cairo. You can see it today. That What the Hittites did is turn loose a bunch of mares. <laughs> and you can imagine what happened. And the stallion's ears came up, and one went that way, and went that way, and havoc. You know, it just created chaos. Well, well, when uh, when this young man looks at his bride, and he says, "You, you, you are to me like a mare among the among the chariots of Pharaoh." See? You, you know exactly what he's talking about. You don't have to explain it. In fact, if you explain it, you ruin it. You know, you. <laughs> So here's this wonderful, wonderful poem. It's all about love and all about lovemaking. And it's right there in the Bible, see? Because God made us male and female, and he made us to enjoy our gender. See, that's one thing that sets us apart from animals. You want to know how I know? Because I've seen bugs stuck together, and they aren't smiling. <laughs> we, we are different. We are different. Now, uh, 
you know, sex is for pleasure. That's what it's designed for. It's designed to, to give and receive pleasure. We'll talk more about that in a moment. It's also for procreation. I mean, obviously, that, that's how little bambinos come into the world. I, I you know, I, I hate to tell you, if some of you still hold to the stork theory, I want, want, want to let you know that one's been disproved a long time ago. You know, a man and, and a woman, out of their love for one another, create an, another life. That's why it's called procreation. It's the creation with God of a of another life. What a what a wonderful thing. But see, that's not all that it's for. We share that in common with the animals. But God also gives us the the gift of our of our sexuality so that we can we can enjoy one another and enjoy the the the, the gift of love making. That's one of God's gracious gifts to us. That's what sex is for. Now, interestingly enough, it's also for something else. You know, I, sex is the next thing to worship. It's not the ultimate experience. It's the, the penultimate experience, the next to the last experience. The greatest experience is worshiping God. But sex is a wonderful picture of our, of our urge to merge with God. See, all of our yearnings and our long... It's hard for us to understand our sexuality because the... The drives seem like such a mystery. We can't we can't explain them to ourselves, but ultimately they find their realization in in worship and adoration and devotion to Christ, being possessed by Him and possessing Him. You see. Now I wouldn't have the nerve to drag this in, except Paul does. I want you to, to look at an interesting passage, uh, Book of Ephesians. Galatians, First and Second Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, chapter five. Verse twenty-five. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That's what love is. It's it's a, a giving of yourself fully and wholly to another person. We we men need to love our wives the way Christ loved. His church with his dying love, his willingness to lay his life on the line for his bride. In order to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing uh, with water through the word. To present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. That ought to be our goal as well, to love our our wives, to be an example of, of Christ's love for his bride. So that they grow into everything that God has in mind for them. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own body. Different comparison. Love as Christ loves his church. Love our wives as we love ourselves. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but he feeds and cares for it, just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. Now listen to this. This is what is often missed. Verse 31. Here he quotes Genesis 3. This is Moses speaking. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. As I pointed out uh, several weeks ago, that phrase, the two become one flesh, is the, is the Hebrew euphemism or idiom for sexual intercourse. The two become one flesh. The two are originally one. God separated out Adam's mate from himself. And 
And sexual intercourse is not union so much as it's reunion. It's entering again into that original relationship. The two become one. Now listen to what he says. This is a profound mystery. What? The two becoming one flesh. And notice what he, how he explains it. I'm talking about Christ in his church. You understand what he's saying? It is marriage certainly is a picture of, of the relationship that Christ has to his bride. But it, but the analogy goes far beyond marriage. It has to do with sexual union, that that union is a picture of our union with Christ. You see what he does? He sanctifies sex. And you didn't need to understand that. Some of you have come out of some harsh, bitter religions or you were mistreated, sexually abused as a child. Come out with the wrong, entirely wrong concept of sex. And it's really hard for you to, to grapple with this. And it may take time. For you to grow out of those feelings, those, those powerful emotions that keep you from giving yourself fully to your spouse. But, but you can do it. You can move in that direction. You can begin to heal. And, and, and the beginning point is to realize that sex is okay. It's all right. God said so. It's part of the, of the good creation that he has, uh, he has given to us. Now, with that as a background, let's let's uh, it's a fairly lengthy introduction to a very short text. But let, let me uh, have you take a look now at verse one of of chapter seven. Now, for the matters you wrote about, it is good for a man not to marry. That's the that's the shocking thing as you turn to this passage. Remember, it's Paul who wrote Ephesians five and who said that sex is a is is the next thing to worship. It's the highest, most exalted act next to worship. And, and now he quotes what they say with approval. There's no question about this. He says, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. But I, I want you to notice what Paul says. He does not say it's best. He does not say it's better. He just says it, it's okay. It's okay. He's going to develop this theme later. We're going to, we're going to talk about this uh, in a couple of weeks where he talks about being single-minded and the, and the greater benefits as far as he's concerned practically of, of being single. But, but I want you to understand he's not saying at this point that being single is better than, than being married. He's just saying both are, are equally good. Now, it's important that you single people, for whatever reason, whether you're divorced or widowed or whether you've never been married, that you understand that if you're single and celibate, you're okay. It's all right. As Paul will say later, you can remain with God. You're not strange. You're not fundamentally weird. You're okay. It's good to be single. Not better, not best, but it's okay, you see. Now, isn't it odd that in the church we have a tendency to, to feel uncomfortable around single people? We, we don't know how to handle that. You know, if they're not sinful, they're at least a little bit strange, particularly those that are sort of over the hill. You know, the opening gambit of all matchmaking mothers is, so why aren't you married yet? You know, and you hear that all the time. Single people tend to, tend to be separated out from the rest of the body of Christ and treated as though they were different, something unusual. About them, but isn't it odd that we do that? When the Apostle Paul himself chose to be single, I think Paul was probably married at some point. 
and divorced. I think when Paul became a Christian, his wife divorced him. You could do that in, in Judaism during that day if, if your mate uh, converted to Christianity. I think she divorced him. And I think that's what Paul meant when he said, I've suffered the loss of all things. He lost his wife. Perhaps he lost his children. He lost a big portion of his life when he, when he gave his heart to, to Christ. But then he decided, because he was single, that he could serve the Lord better in that, in that capacity. That was his choice. That was his gift from God. There was nothing wrong with it. And isn't it odd that we denigrate the single state when our Lord, who was a perfect, sinless man, was a bachelor until the day he died? You know, we're going to talk about this passage in a couple of weeks when we talk about being single-minded, but uh, the disciples came to Jesus once and they said, you know, is it lawful to divorce your wife for any cause? And and Jesus said, uh, well, no, no, it isn't. And he, there's one exclusion clause there, which is unfaithfulness on the part of either, either spouse. But he said, other than that, it's God's intention that a man and a woman live together for life. And the disciples said, oof, boy, if that's the case, it's better not to marry. I mean, if, you know, if you've got to stay with this thing through all the hurt and the pain and the hurdles, it's better to be single. Jesus said, now, wait a minute, not necessarily. Because being single is a, is a gift. Some men, he said, uh, you know, and he is thinking of men in this particular case, but it applies equally to women. Some have, have been made eunuchs by, by men. Others were born eunuchs. Some have chosen to be eunuchs, celibate, he means, for the sake of the, of the kingdom of God. To each person is given his gift. We're going to talk in a couple of weeks about what that gift actually is. You'll have to wait for two weeks. Just hang in there. We'll talk about that. But, you see, Jesus is saying is that there is a graciously given gift of celibacy. And there's nothing wrong with being single and celibate. Nothing wrong with it. And, and we as a body of believers need to give honor and respect to those among us who have not yet married. Or who are divorced and have chosen to be single or for whatever reason remain single within the body of Christ. You're okay. You're all right. But it is also all right to get married. Now, I want you to look at the way Paul argues, because uh, this is going to strike some of you as, uh, as a very strange argument. But Paul says it is, it is good for a man not to marry. But, however, since there is so much immorality, each man should have his own wife and, and each woman should have her own husband. Now, uh, the word for immorality is the word fornication, which... Uh, refers to all sorts of illicit sexual activity. Every kind of sexual activity outside of marriage. Marriage between a man and a woman. Uh, Adultery, what we would call fornication, homosexuality, pornography, every other form of sexual expression outside of heterosexual marriage is considered fornication. And he uses the form, uh, the word here in, in its plural form, fornications, which is unusual. That's why the, the NIV translates, since there is so much immorality. Remember that I mentioned uh, uh, earlier when I first introduced the book that the city of Corinth was known for its licentiousness. Every type of, of porn and perversion 
was practiced in uh, in the city of Corinth. There were thousands of temple prostitutes that plied the streets of Corinth at night, both male and and female, and homosexuality was was prevalent. And there were you know, the equivalent of porn shops and X-rated uh, movies and everything that we we experience today. And the temptations toward immorality were were very very intense. This was, as I said, a sex saturated society. And Paul says, in in view of this, and in view of the fact that God has given to us a libido, a certain drives and impulses. it's a good thing to get married. That's one way to handle your sexual drives. And he puts it very baldly. Since there's so much immorality, each each man should have his own wife and each woman her her own husband. It's good to get married. That's what he's saying in view of the the pressures of uh, of this day. Now, that's not a new idea. Paul didn't think this up. That same idea is found in, in, in the Old Testament, in the book of Proverbs, where you have a, a very wise father instructing his son. The, the Proverbs are set up that way, a, a father teaching his son, but it could go the other way. It could be a mother teaching her son or a mother teaching her, her daughter. <clears throat> and in the course of this instruction in chapter 5, he gives some instruction to uh, his son about uh, avoiding adultery. He's assuming that one of these days his son would marry, and uh, someone will come along who's very seductive and very attractive, and you're going to be uh, drawn toward her, and I want to let you know how to avoid adultery. Uh, he, he, uh, the father here describes the, 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 the person who comes and attracts him as a stranger, which is the way the Old Testament looks at everyone other than your wife. Your wife is your friend, and everyone else is a stranger in terms of the intimacy of the relationship. Well, here comes this uh, lovely young lady into his life, and the father describes her as having honey on her lips. In other words, she's very sweet. She will sweet-talk you. It will sound very good. Now, it could be turned around the other way. This could be instruction to a woman about men who come into her life who seem to be everything that her heart is, has ever yearned for. And uh, the, the father says, D- D- don't, don't, don't listen to her. Don't listen. She's going to kill you. He says, Adultery is suicidal, he says. See, that's the point of view of Proverbs. The law, the Torah, suggests that sin, or it does more than, than suggest, it indicates that sin is sin against God. In the book of Proverbs, sin is against yourself. You trash your life, he says, when you violate the, the will of God. And, and so he says very pointedly, don't, don't get involved with someone else, someone outside of marriage, because it will kill you. It is suicidal. Now, the question is how to avoid adultery. Two ways, he says. First of all, just stay away from the strange woman. Don't uh, listen to her. Don't go near her house. Don't spend time with her. Run from her. Flee from her. Just don't get involved. And then secondly, he says... Love your wife. Love your wife. How about that? Just stir up your love relationship with your wife, see? Now, that doesn't mean that all of your sexual urges and all the thoughts are going to be taken care of, but, but, but that's a, a strong deterrent right there in your own home to being involved with somebody else. So cultivate your love relationship, he's saying. The bride of, 
of your youth, the woman that, that you've been married to throughout your, your life. Now here it occurs again. Paul says one way to avoid immorality is to love your wife. Just love her with all your heart and all your soul. Same would be true for women. One way to avoid immorality is to love your husband with all your heart and all your soul. Now, at first reading, this sounds a little bit crass. It sounds like Paul is saying, well, if you're having trouble and you can't handle your sexual urges, then just run out and get married. But that's not what Paul is saying at all. He, uh, he gives essentially the same instruction uh, in, in, in an earlier book, at least a book that was written earlier. And it's the book of 1 Thessalonians. Uh, turn there with me, if you will. 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and then 1 Thessalonians. Now listen to this. Verse 1. Finally, brothers, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. You know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. Oh, this is repeated instruction that Paul had given. It came from an inspired apostle, and behind it is the authority of our Lord Jesus. That's not good advice. This is a mandate. This is a command. Verse 3. It's God's will that you should be holy, i.e., that you should avoid sexual immorality. I like the way the NASB puts it. This is the will of God, even your sanctification. The word sanctification means to put something to its intended purpose. That's what you're doing to these chairs. You're sanctifying them because you're sitting in them the right way. If you, turn, if you straddle them and turn around the other way, you wouldn't be sanctifying. Because that's not what they're made for. See? To sanctify something is to put it to God's intended purpose. So this is how you put, uh, put uh, all that you are at, at God's disposal. It's God's will that you should be holy. And, and the thing to do, he says, to, is to avoid sexual immorality. How do you do that? That each one of you, now my text says, should learn to control his own body. But if you look at the footnote, it reads, each one should acquire his own vessel. Now, it's a well-known fact that the rabbis of that day used the, the, the word vessel as the equivalent of a wife. I don't know why, but that was, just, that was a metaphor that they, that they employed. And I take the footnote in this case that Paul is saying that the one way to keep yourself holy and avoid uh, fornication, one way to, to be sanctified, to put your body to God's intended purpose is to acquire a wife. And that's exactly what he said in, in 1 Corinthians 7. And it sounds again like he's saying that if, if you just can't control these urges, then you know, put an ad in the paper or... or uh, Start hustling until you find yourself a, a, a mate. But, but notice what Paul says in response to that, uh, that question. Each of you, he said, should learn to acquire his own vessel in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the heathen who do not know God. You understand what he's saying? That the main thing is not sexual attraction because that fades that's the way the pagans, he says, the heathen, pick out a pick out a wife. Remember the old country western song, "We got married in a fever, hotter than a how's it go? Hotter than a pepper sprout." That's it. 
We got married in a fever, hotter than a pepper sprout. Now I'm thinking about Jackson, ever since the fire went out. That's the way I'll see. Now that's what so often happens with, with unbelievers. There's a strong sexual attraction, and they think that the 90% of marriage takes place in bed, and then they discover that, that that's really a very small component of marriage, that there's a lot more to making, making a marriage go than just, than just performance in bed, that there's a lot of hard work, a lot of heartache, a lot of struggle, a lot of love, but, but there are some, some tough times, you see. So what Paul is saying is that there's a, there's a better way to pick out a mate than do it on the basis of sexual attraction and sexual need and sexual compatibility because that will not make for an enduring marriage. As Paul would put it in, a, in another place, the way to, to go about putting, putting yourself to God's intended purpose is through prayer and the Word of God. Paul says uh, everything is good and nothing is to be refused if it is put to its intended purpose by the word of God in prayer, see? So you have uh, you know, these hormones raging through your body and you know what to do with it and, and you don't really feel called to a celibate life and we'll talk more about what that really means later on but you, you, know, you, you, just, you really want to get married. The thing to do is to just put yourself in God's hand. Remember the story of Adam and Eve? God looked at Adam and he said, it's not good that that man should be alone. He was so lonely. He wanted a partner so much for life. And God said, that's not, that's not good. God knows your aloneness. See? But then Adam didn't go hustling. He didn't go running through the woods looking for a mate. God put him to sleep. Which is God's way of saying, I'm, I, I'm going to take care of this. In my own time and, and in my own way, I, I'm, going to, I'm going to provide the mate for you. Just let me handle this. And that's what we have to do. We, we put ourselves at God's disposal through the word of God. You know, we, by the way, talking about Proverbs, one of the most memorable chapters in the whole book of Proverbs is chapter 31. Where a mother teaches her father what to, uh, her father, a mother teaches her, her son what to look for in a mate. And so as we're governed by the word of God, we, we begin to look not for someone who's, who's merely sexually attractive to us, but someone who has the qualities that God desires to see in, in a man or a woman and, and uh, the, the qualities that make for a lasting uh, relationship. And then as we begin to pray and we begin to wait upon God, in his own time and on his way, and in his own way, he may bring the person into our life that we need. And until that time comes, we can, as Paul will put it later, we can remain with God. He Himself will satisfy us, so that we don't we don't need to to uh, fall uh, fall into uh, into sexual sins. Now, you see, what Paul is saying is that. That marriage is, is one of God's ways to provide for our sexual needs. But we have to wait upon him to provide. Now, um, I don't have time to develop this, uh, this idea at all. I simply want to read verses 3 and 4 and make a couple of comments. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife. And likewise, the wife to her husband. The wife's body does not belong to her alone, but also to her husband. In the same way, in the same way, the husband's body does not belong to him alone, but also to his wife. Do not deprive each other, 
that's the word that is translated defraud in chapter 6. Remember the fellow who was defrauding his brother and, and his, uh, the man who was defrauded took the case into court. That's the word to defraud. Do not defraud each other except by mutual consent and for a time so that you may devote yourself to prayer. See here again, the highest, the highest function on, on earth is worship. Sex is not the greatest experience. It is not the ultimate experience. It is the penultimate experience. It's the next to the last experience. The last experience is worship, prayer, as Paul says here. And uh, it's the only thing that takes precedence over our sexual needs. And so Paul says, don't defraud each other. Give yourself to one another. So I'll make a couple of quick comments here. It's all I have time to say. If I understand what Paul is saying here, frigidity is a sin. It's wrong to defraud your mate by withholding yourself. Now, there may be a, a, you may have many good reasons for, for being frigid. You, as I say, you may have been abused as a child. You may have came, come out of your training, perhaps a parent who had a, a, a distorted view of, of her sexuality or his sexuality. And uh, this is not something that can be corrected in a moment. Uh, you may need help, you may need counsel, you may need, need to do uh, quite a bit of reading and, and thinking, and, and you may ti- it may take time for you to heal. But the important thing is that God wants you to start moving toward healing because to withhold yourself from, from your spouse is, is sin. It's wrong. And it creates so uh, much hurt and so much harm uh, in a marriage. Now, that's the first thing I think Paul is saying. We mustn't withhold ourselves from one another. The other thing uh, is that he's saying that the other thing that he's saying here is um, that we don't belong to each other. Now, now I want us to read this carefully because Paul is not saying that we have the right to demand sex whenever we want it. Uh, I, there are men that I, I know and have talked to who use this passage to justify that point of view. Paul says, you have an obligation to me, so submit. It is your duty. That is so destructive of intimacy. That is not what Paul is talking about here. He is not saying, you owe me. Read the text carefully. What he's saying is, I owe you. In other words, I owe my wife love. You see, it's not the other way around. I cannot demand that she serve me. I must serve her. You see, this is, a, this is a, one small area in which this universal principle, which our Lord spells out, obtains. It was our Lord who said, if you want to you lose yourself, try to find yourself. If you want to find yourself, then lose yourself. The most miserable people I know, the most unfulfilled, unsatisfied people are those that are always trying to satisfy themselves, who don't care about others. They're, they're always trying to get their own needs met, and they're not interested in meeting the needs of other people. Conversely, the happiest people I know are, are people that are, that, are, that are committed to ministering to others. See, that, that, our Lord not only enunciated that principle, he illustrated it. He said, I'm come not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give my life a ransom for many. And you see, what, what we need to understand is that lovemaking is not what happens in bed at night. It's what begins 
at, at the crack of dawn. It's the way we treat one another as husband and, and wife. It's our willingness to, to give ourselves in, in those little acts of kindness and love, the little touches and hugs and caresses and, and, and expressions, verbal expressions of love. It's the, it's the things that we do for one another that, uh, that fulfill us, you see. But when we try to, to find ourselves, we try to fulfill ourselves in other ways, we always end up empty and, and unsatisfied. There's that gnawing hunger inside that, that can never be fulfilled. Our needs are, are a bottomless pit. They're infinite. And if we think of our spouses as someone God gave us to meet our needs, we're always going to be hollow, uh, hollow people. Now let me tell you, you can't love like that unless you understand the love of God. There's simply no way that any one of us can generate that that sort of love. If if uh, you know if we, we if we try to find ourselves in someone else, no matter how giving and loving they may be, there'll always be those empty places. But when our lives are filled and flooded with God, when we know that we're loved and accepted, we can give ourselves to others, even though there's nothing in response, even though we we may be frustrated and hurt and. And uh, we may not achieve the uh, ends that we desire. That we can be satisfied. As John puts it in, in his little epistle, we love because he first loved us. The only way to love someone else is to know how fully loved you are of God. Despite your weakness, despite your limitations, despite your failure, you're greatly loved by God. And Mother Teresa put it this way, don't, don't be afraid, she said. God loves you and wants you to love one another. As miserable, weak, and sinful as we are, he loves us with an infinitely patient love. Let's pray. Father, we echo her words. We are miserable, weak, sinful men and women. We do not have the capacity to love like this. But uh, we know that uh, despite our failure, despite our limitations, you continue to love us. You will never forsake us. You will never leave us. You will never turn your back on us. You will never walk away from us. Though we are faithless, you abide faithful. Help us, Lord, to find ourselves in that love. Help us to to gain from that knowledge that we are infinitely loved, that sense of well-being and security that enables us to to reach out and touch our partners with, with genuine love, to be careless of, of, what, uh, of what return we receive and uh, to be content with the love that you give to us. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.